Good morning. morning. Open with me in the scriptures, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. The text that we are looking at together this morning, as far as I can tell, is the closest thing that we can find to a burning bush experience anywhere in the New Testament. What the Lord God has revealed to us here through the Apostle Paul is extremely significant. It's extremely significant. It's important for us to understand that what has been written this morning is not to the world at large. What's been written this morning is not to the world at large. It is written to the people of God. Look at what Trey <coughs> preached to us last week. Look in, uh, in verse 2. Paul says that he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus that are faithful in Christ Jesus. He says to the saints, he's talking about people that have been set apart. Not people who have set themselves apart, but people whom God has set apart from their sin unto service to Him. They are faithful. They hold to the faith once delivered to the saints. They hold to that. And they are in Christ Jesus. Now, those are three ways of saying the same thing. It's much, much more than that, but at a minimum, those are three ways of saying the same thing. I want to communicate to you this morning that the people to whom Paul wrote this letter in Ephesus had been delivered out of the world. They were different from the world. They were not of the world any longer. They belonged to God. There was a, a substantial difference in where they had come from and who they are. They are not the world. They are the people of God. I'm afraid to a very large degree in the culture and the society in which we live here, even in Saline County, we have lost the concept of the fact that we who belong to God are no longer of the world. We are different. We have not made ourselves different, but Almighty God has made us different from the world. I trust that by His Spirit we will see that this morning as we look at these verses together. 3 through 6. What we have here is a unique view of believers. A unique view of salvation. God gives us in a very panoramic view in verses 3 all the way through 14. We see the entire Godhead at work in the salvation of the people of God. Of delivering from their sin, delivering them unto God. We see this from God's perspective. When we think of salvation, we most often think of it from our perspective, of the one who has been forgiven. But in all of the New Testament, the one place that we see the most concise revelation of God's view, of God's perspective of salvation, are in these verses in the first 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. As we go through this entire section of text together over the next few weeks, we'll see that the Father is involved. We'll see that this morning. We'll see how the Son is involved in the salvation of the people that the Father has given Him. And we'll see the role of the Spirit, the entirety of the Godhead, all three members of the one true God. Now it's important to recognize and realize that all of this is based on the eternal covenant. The covenant that we read about in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. It's a covenant that was made between God the Father and God the Son. That eternal covenant to save the people that Almighty God the Father had given to His Son, 
is something that we benefit from, but that covenant was not made with us. That covenant was made between members of the Godhead. We are recipients and beneficiaries of blessings from that covenant, but that agreement was between God the Father and God the Son with the involvement of God the Spirit. I also want you to know that as Neil mentioned this morning, we're talking about the deep things of God in the Word this morning. We're talking about election. We're talking about predestination. We're talking about adoption. These are deep theological matters, but they do matter. And I want you to recognize and realize that the Apostle Paul, in writing to the churches in the region of Ephesus, was writing not to THDs, not to PhDs, not to seminary graduates. He was writing to regular folks just like us. And as this letter would have been read to them on the Lord's Day morning, Paul had every reason to expect that under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit that resided in them, they could understand what he was communicating to them. So even though some of the things that we talk about this morning are not conversations that we maybe had at dinner last night, by the power of God's Spirit that lives within us, and by the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ among his people this morning, these things are not beyond us with God giving us illumination and insight. Theology matters. What we believe about God matters. What this book says matters. And before we get started this morning, I want to ask you a question. And I'll tell you, I'm going to ask you again before we get done. So I want you to give it a little bit of thought. To each one of you that professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I ask you this morning, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Let's read the text together, and then we'll start. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. This is the Word of God. May He bless the reading and the preaching of His Word this morning. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we come before You now. I pray that You would open our hearts, that Your Spirit would work as only He can in our lives, that You would open not only our hearts, Father, to uh, Your love that is shed abroad to us in these verses, but that Your Spirit would be present, Lord, and that He would uh, uh, give me uh, preaching grace this morning that he would give your people grace to hear. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do what only you can do, and that is to give us spiritual truth and illumination. Lord, we pray this for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the glory of his blessed Father, God Almighty. Holy Spirit, please work among us today. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. What we'll notice from these four verses this morning is this, is that the Father has blessed us in Christ. The Father has chosen us in Christ. The Father has predestined us through Christ. And the Father has accepted us in Christ, His beloved. Let's look at verse 3 together. The Father has blessed us in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This verse starts with this. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You understand that Paul is not calling upon us to, to bless the Lord God in some way that He will benefit from. That's not what he means there. There's no way that we can bless God in any way that He can benefit from. What Paul is telling us is, worship God. In light of everything that he's about to tell us, our proper response is to worship God. He is self-sufficient, he is self-existent, and he needs nothing from his creatures. What this means is, is that we should celebrate who God is, to celebrate the glory of God, his greatness and his goodness, to worship him and give thanks for who he is and for his mercy and his grace and his blessings that Paul is about to tell us about. Now, contrasting God with us. Look, He has blessed us in Christ. Let us contrast the goodness and the greatness, the righteousness and the justice and the holiness of God. In the same breath, the Apostle talks about us being blessed in Christ. Let us think about us for just a moment. Us. Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to folks just like us. He's not writing to the world at large. He's writing to us. But let's think about ourselves and every Christian. We are those who deserve to be cursed. We are those who were conceived in sin. We were born spiritually dead, and by nature we're the enemies of God and we're rebels against Him. We had come into this world justly under His wrath, justly under His condemnation. We are haters of God, lovers of self, aliens to the commonwealth of Israel and all of God's people, and we are unable and we are unwilling to make approach to God. That is the Bible truth about our condition apart from Christ. But nonetheless, Almighty God the Father has chose to bless us with every heavenly blessing in Christ Jesus. Think of that for just a moment. Rebels, God-haters like us, God has called out of darkness and into light, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He has blessed us. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We stop and we think about what the Apostle is telling us here. He's telling us four things. Four things about the blessings that we have received from the Father in Christ. He gives us the basis on which we've received those blessings. He gives us the quantity or the amount of those blessings. He tells us even the kind of blessings that we've received. And He tells us really the epicenter, the very center of where those blessings reside. Notice, the basis of the blessings that we have received from the Father are in Christ. We are in Christ. The blessings that Paul speaks of here only belong to those that are in Christ. They are only mediated to the people of God through Christ. The blessings that Paul is talking about are unknown by all of those who are not in Christ. It is an exclusive people that are blessed by Almighty God with all of the heavenly and spiritual blessings. They are the people that are in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us even the amount of the blessings that we receive in Christ. He said that it is every, it is every spiritual blessing. There are no spiritual blessings that God withholds from His people. You understand that, right, my brothers and sisters? He tells us the kind of blessings that we receive. Now, there are plenty of, of, of uh, earthly and physical blessings that we receive in this world, but Paul tells us 
in this verse that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are too numerous to mention all of them, and we would be here for quite a while should we even try. But certainly he speaks of the blessing of regeneration. God has given us the new birth. God has justified us. He has imputed unto us the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has given us faith and repentance as evidence of the fact that He has regenerated us. God has pardoned us. God has given us peace with God and the peace of God. God has adopted us into the family of God. He has reconciled us to Himself. He has redeemed us out of the slave market of sin. God has forgiven us. God is sanctifying us. God is glorifying us. Those are the kinds of blessings that Paul is talking about. God has determined to make us holy and blameless and the sons and daughters of God. That is true of every one of God's children, no matter where you may be in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ today. Whether you are closer than you have ever been or whether you are backslidden farther than you have ever been, you have experienced every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. And then Paul gives us the location of those blessings. They are heavenly. Those blessings are heavenly. Most of them cannot be observed with our eyes. I cannot see necessarily those blessings in your life. I cannot necessarily see those blessings in my life. It seems that the world in which we live, and to some degree each and every Christian as well, longs for the blessings that we can see. The blessings that come in the statement on our latest uh, statement regarding our 401k. The blessing of a new vehicle. The blessing of a new home. The blessing of health. The blessing of of uh, riches, the, the blessings that the world looks at, I'm not saying that it's absolutely wrong to long for those kind of blessings in moderation. But what I'm saying is, that's not what Paul is talking about right here. Paul is talking about blessings that cannot be seen with our eyes. He's talking about spiritual blessings from God who is spirit to His children who He has placed in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is in the heavenlies. That's why our blessings are there. Think of those heavenly blessings that God has given you as being centered in Christ in the heavenlies. The description that Paul gives here is not unlike the description that he gave when he said that he knew a man who had been blessed beyond measure and had caught up into the third heaven. He's talking about the third heaven here. He's not talking about the atmospheric heaven in which the birds fly. He's not talking about the stellar heaven in which the stars reside. He's talking about the third heaven that the Jews would have spoken of. That is the, the home of God is where His glory is revealed. Christ is there. Think of the safety of that. The blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ are out of reach of any enemy. They are out of the reach of any enemy and we cannot be deprived of them by sin or by Satan or by the world, not by life, not by death, not by health, not by sickness. Those blessings are ours because God has given them to us in Jesus Christ who is in the heavenlies. That's good news. That's good news. But it doesn't end there. Look with me at verse 4. The Father has chosen us. The Father has chosen us. In Christ. How did we get in Christ? The Father has chosen us in Christ. Look at verse 4. The Apostle said, Even as He, God the Father, even as He chose us in Him, Jesus Christ the Son, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. The blessed, blessed doctrine of election 
is set before us here. Before we go any farther, let me ask you this question. Did you know that Jesus Christ, as mediator and representative of all of his people, is the object of election himself? You can read about that in Isaiah 42. Did you know that all of the elect of God were chosen in him as their head, and that when Christ was elect of God, he is our mediator. He is our head. He is our representative. As a matter of fact, let me read that to you from Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3. Almighty God said this. He said, Behold my servant, speaking of Christ, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen. The old King James says, Mine elect. I like that. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Mine elect, God's chosen, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we chosen in him. The Spirit of God tells us through the Apostle that those who enjoy the spiritual blessings in Christ, those who enjoy the spiritual blessings in Christ do so because they have been chosen by God to experience those blessings. They were chosen before the foundation of the world in eternity past. Great, great is the mystery of godliness. It's beyond the ability of our puny minds to understand why God chose some hell-deserving rebels out of the mass of humanity that is headed for perdition. But thank God He did. Amen. Election is the first blessing of grace upon which all others proceed. The truth of this Bible doctrine, the doctrine of election, is not to be argued among believers in an angry, frenzied passion. Election is not a theory. It's not a personal theology. It's not an argument. It's a biblical statement of fact. God chose us before the foundation of the world to make us holy and blameless and to adopt us as sons and daughters of God. The doctrine of election, like all others, is to be approached and embraced with humility of mind thankfulness of heart, and praise for the loving God that did not leave us to collect the just wages of our sin, eternal death, but chose to give us the gift of life. God the Father is the author of this choice. It is entirely an act of the Father's free will and sovereign grace to choose the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll not waste any time giving you the, my thoughts or the thoughts of theologians on this other than one, Jesus Christ our Lord, the elect of God. Listen to what he said in John chapter 6. He said, all that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me will come to me. 
And whoever comes to me, I will never, no, never cast out. He said two verses later, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. Oh, the blessed doctrine of election, to know that God has placed us in Christ, that the blessings that we have are secure because our Christ is in the heavenly places, that he has accomplished what God sent him to do, and we are as secure as he is secure. In the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus in John 17, we read this. He said, I have manifested your name, God's name. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. He said, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Oh, the blessed doctrine of God's election. Now make no mistake, natural men, unsaved men I'm talking about, natural men hate the doctrine of unconditional election above all other doctrine. Because of all doctrine, election most clearly shows us the true nature and the consequence of sin, and it shows us beyond that the helplessness and the inability of men to save themselves. Although a Christian's understanding of the doctrine of election may not decide their salvation, it does determine to a very large degree the joy of their salvation and their sense of security and certainty in this life. It is very important. The statement of faith of Grace Baptist Church very clearly confesses our belief in unconditional election. It's worded this way. Election is God's eternal choice of some persons unto everlasting life, not because of foreseen merit or foreseen faith in them, but of his mere mercy in Christ, in consequence of which choice they are called, justified, and glorified. Praise God. Notice, the doctrine of election does not exist in a vacuum. The apostle tells us, that we were chosen for this purpose, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Notice, God did not choose us because we were holy and blameless. God did not choose us because we were on a trajectory toward being holy and blameless. No, we were rebels against God. We were haters of God. He chose us, the scriptures tell us, in order to make us holy and blameless before him in love. Now, you'll notice that the way that I have read that verse is slightly different. The punctuation that I've given, I put a comma after in love and I remove the period from him. That is reasonable. There's a marginal reading at the bottom of the ESV that tells you that that's an acceptable reading. I'm of the opinion that the determination on how that verse is to be read is not so much grammatical as it is theological. The Lord God definitely predestined us in love but the in love here goes with the fact that he is making us holy and blameless before him. Think about that for just a moment. Before him. We are standing before Almighty God today, my brother and sister in Christ. 
knowing that he has declared us to be holy and blameless and imputed unto us the, uh, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ in justification, but we do not stand before him in fear. We do not stand before him in terror. We stand before him in love. We stand before God knowing that he loves us infinitely, and we stand before God with love in our heart toward him. That is substantially different from what we were before God saved us and regenerated us and adopted us into his family. The Apostle John tells us that there is no fear in love. The Apostle John tells us we love because he first loved us. God is in the process of making us holy and blameless in order that we may stand before him in love. We're not chosen because we are holy and blameless, but in order to be made holy and blameless and to stand before our God and experience His infinite love and to reflect His love, His unconditional love for us to Him. Look with me at verse 5. The Father has predestined us through Christ. The Father has predestined us through Christ. Ephesians 1.5 says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Now in this verse, the Apostle sets before us two glorious doctrines, predestination and adoption. Let us take them in order and consider predestination first. Like election, predestination is not presented as an argument. It's stated as a biblical fact. It does not stand alone in a vacuum in this verse. It does not stand alone in a vacuum with regard to God's people. The word predestined means essentially this, to determine before. To decree or ordain that which will come to pass, it simply means to predetermine. It means that God has predetermined. The Bible fact of God's predestination is very closely related to His providence. It's very closely related to His purpose. It's very closely related to His decree. In the broadest sense, in the broadest scope, predestination applies to all the affairs and occurrences that ever come to pass, no matter where and no matter when. Predestination applies to the lives and circumstances of all men everywhere in every age. It applies to all the blessings of God, physical and spiritual. Predestination applies to all the afflictions of God that come into the lives of men, whether they come as the result of the love of God or they come as the result of the wrath of God. You see, all of the providence and the outworking of providence are the execution of divine predestination. Whatever comes to pass was purposed by God, was decreed by God, and was predestined to come by God. There are no exceptions. Here, predestination is referenced in relation to God determining before the foundation of the world to adopt His chosen people as sons of God through Jesus Christ. Adoption was not a Jewish concept. Adoption was a Roman concept. Paul was a Roman citizen. There were very many Gentiles that he was writing to here in the realm of Ephesus. It's not uncommon that he would reach out and take a Roman concept and apply it. Adoption in the Roman world was not substantially different from it is in our world today. Adoption is a legal term. The term that Paul used here was a legal term, and it had everything to do with the relationship and the standing of the child. It had nothing to do with the nature of the child. You see, 
Being adopted into God's family is not what changes our nature. Regeneration is what changes our nature. And realize this, God could have stopped at regeneration. He was under no obligation to do that. He's certainly no, under no obligation to adopt us into His family. But what Paul is telling us here, by saying that we've been adopted into the family of God, he's telling us not that we've been given a new nature, but something else. What is that else? Well, it was a legal term that had to do with relationship and standing. It was a legal term that signified that having been adopted, the Roman child had an absolute legal right, an absolute legal right to make a claim to the name and the property of the person by whom he had been adopted. And the Roman law also granted all the rights and privileges of a father to the person who adopted the child. Beloved, the Holy Spirit is telling us through the Apostle Paul this morning that not only has God given us new life, not only has He made us partakers of the divine nature, but that He has adopted us into His family, and along with that, we have an absolute right, an absolute legal, biblical, scriptural right to claim our position as the sons and daughters of God this morning that there are certain rights and privileges that accompany being a son of God. They are numerous. They are many. They would fill volumes. But by virtue of the fact that God has adopted us into His family, let us not lose sight of the fact that we are the children of God. As much now as we will ever be. Brother, sister, there is not a moment coming, not in this life, not in the next life, not in everlasting eternity, that you will be more a child of God than you are at this moment. The moment that God gave you life, He also adopted you into His family. Now notice, His new name is upon us, according to the words of the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 3. There is a new name for the children of God. The Bible tells us that we have been, as children of God, given the Spirit of God to come and dwell within us. The Bible tells us that as children of God, that we are the heirs of God, and we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a sermon in every one of these points. The Bible tells us that as children of God, we have a definite and certain hope of our final redemption. And the Bible even tells us that as children of God, we will judge the world. And not only that, but that we will judge the angels. Greg, do you understand that? No. Do you believe it? Yes. Our calling is high and holy. Our Father is high and holy. The family that we are members of is high and holy. And we are the children of God by the election and the predestination of God. Well, the Apostle doesn't stop there. He tells us why the Father has predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. You see, it was God's plan and His purpose that certain members of this race of Adam who had fallen away from Him and who were aliens in their mind, who were under His wrath and condemnation to deserve hell, should become His sons with all rights and privileges of being members of the family of God. Notice, He did this in accordance with the purpose of His will. Once again, we see the will of God at work, His free and sovereign will. 
His predestination to adopt His chosen ones is based solely on His purpose to do so, not on foreseen faith, not on holiness or good works. Wow. It keeps piling up. Look with me at verse 6. The Father has highly favored us in Christ. The Father has highly favored us in Christ. Verse 6 says, To the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. That blessed us there, that word blessing, or, or the word that blessed comes from, is different from what we've read previous in the text that we've looked at today. This word means highly favored. You remember when the angel uh, told uh, the Virgin Mary that she, she is uh, uh, highly favored. Highly favored. Chosen by God to bear the Christ child. Same word. Same word. God has highly favored us in His Beloved. Here it is, folks. Here it is. Here is the great motive behind God's redemption. The ultimate purpose in the mind and the wisdom of God, which has led to all the blessing resulting from the great purpose of salvation. Have you ever wondered, what is it among other things? What is the, the penultimate that has moved Almighty God into to, uh, all the things that are necessary to save His people out of their sin and their rebellion against Him? It's this. It's that which motivates God in everything He does. He did it for His glory. He did it for His glory. Does that make you a little uncomfortable? Does it make you a little uncomfortable to think that the God that we worship is motivated in everything that He does for His own glory? If it was anyone other than God, it should make us uncomfortable. But by virtue of the fact that God is God and He is the glorious being, God is not only within His rights to be so motivated, it's exactly the right thing to do. You see, it is all for the glory of God. We're the beneficiaries of it. As we think about the different ways that we can describe God, glory may be the very best term to describe Him. It incorporates all of His attributes. He's an all-powerful God. He's an all-knowing God. He is everywhere all the time. He is righteous. He is just. He is holy. He is vengeful. He is wrathful. He is jealous over His people. He is absolute, total perfection. He is infinite. We can list the attributes and the characteristics, characteristics of God on and on and on, and without any one of them, He would not be glorious. But in the sum totality of who God is, and what God does, He is absolutely glorious. And as I looked at this this week, I began to think, in almost every instance, before salvation comes, there's the glory of God. Before salvation comes, there's the glory of God. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Think of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah saw God high and lifted up. Isaiah recognized and realized he was in the presence of Almighty God, and he cried out, Woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and what did God do? He purified him. But listen, Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah recognized the glory of God, and God saved him. Think of the story of the birth 
of the Lord Jesus Christ as told in Luke chapter 2, and the angels appearing to the shepherds there, and they sang glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom He is pleased. Once again, we see the glory of God preceding the salvation of God. Paul told the Corinthians this in the fourth chapter of the second letter to the Corinthians. For God said, Let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, I would recommend to you that our thinking about salvation should always be in terms of the glory of God. To think about salvation and to, to omit the thoughts of the glory of God that is associated with the salvation of His people is to do God a disservice. It is to do ourselves a disservice. We should always think of our salvation, our relationship to God through our Lord Jesus Christ in the context of the glory of Almighty God shining forth in our beloved Savior. You see, the glory of God is seen in creation, it's seen in nature, it's seen in history, but finally and fully the glory of God is seen in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God, our blessed Savior. We read in Hebrews chapter 1 that He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We are called, brothers and sisters, we are chosen to holiness, to sonship, to the praise of God's glory. And we are loved by God, even as His Son was loved by Him. We're called to be the children of God. Listen to what John said in his first letter. He said, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. We are indeed the children of God if Jesus Christ is our Savior. And I say very respectfully this. I could not say this if Jesus hadn't said it. I tremble. But I declare to you today on the authority of the Word of God, my brothers and sisters, that we are loved by God even as His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is loved by Him. Oh, there are certain differences. We could list some differences, but it does not change this. In His high priestly prayer, the Lord Jesus said this to the Father. He said, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, on the authority of the Word of God, you are His child this morning, and He loves you as He loves His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We are the sons and daughters of God, because before this world ever was, God chose to make it so. He predestined us to be made holy and blameless, to stand before Him in love, and to be the sons and daughters of God. For our good, yes, but more than that, for His glory. I ask you in the beginning... Why am I a Christian? I'm not going to ask you to stand and give us an answer to that this morning. But I'd like to tell you this. I'm a Christian because before the foundation of this world, God the Father chose me in Christ and He predestined me according to the purpose of His free and sovereign grace. 
to become an adopted son of God through Jesus Christ in order to display his glory through his grace to this hell-deserving sinner. In short, I'm a Christian because God the Father chose to make me one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we are grateful and thankful that you have not left us to our own devices, but that because of your eternal love to us, you have chosen us in Christ Jesus the Lord to set us apart from this world. Father, you have destined us before the beginning of time to be made holy and blameless, to stand before you in love, and to be your sons and your daughters. Father, these are deep, deep things. Our finite human minds cannot conceive of them. We would not know these things apart from you revealing the mystery of your will to us through the Scriptures. Lord, would you take this feeble attempt to preach and teach this truth this morning? Father, even just the reading of these Scriptures, would you take it and impress on us the things that you would have us to know? Father, would you cause us to have a deep and burning desire to live up to the name of the family to which we belong? Father, we are your sons and daughters. Give us a, a deep understanding of that. Cause it to affect the way that we live. Father, may we live with the confidence of knowing that every spiritual blessing is ours, that it is in Jesus Christ, who is in the heavenlies, who secures them for us, and that sin, that, that Satan, that death and hell cannot take those blessings from us, but that we experience absolute security in Christ, in you. Father, we thank you. That is insufficient. Father, that is so insufficient. We thank you, we praise you, we worship you, and we marvel that you would save sinners like us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.